as we get as we begin this morning, I want, I want to make a just give you a couple of reminders about what we're doing. I we're in a doctrinal study. You know that we've said it every week, but. We have come to a place in our doctrinal study that we are saying these are distinctives. They are, they are perspectives that distinguish us from other denominational perspectives or other, other, other perspectives within Christianity. But these are not open, or I'm sorry, these are not essential issues. They are not close handed doctrines. They are not something that distinguish between Christianity and non Christians. This, these are doctrines or perspectives that are held within the Christian community that we should be looking at and debating as necessary, discussing and encouraging one another to grow in our understanding of the truth of God's word. That these perspectives are, are um, secondary in nature, if you will, and we're, that's why we call them distinctives, because they define some of the positions that we hold here in this church, but... They are not part of our covenant membership process. They, you, you do not have to agree with these to be members in this church. They are not essential doctrines, but they are doctrines that we teach and promote because we feel that they are most consistent. We're, we're, we feel pretty convinced that they're most consistent with the teaching of the Scripture. They're not always easy to hold. They're not always... Um, uh, easily discerned. It will take some work sometimes to to see them, and, and that, that's why we're taking the time to do it. But but I just want that I want you to be aware of that because some of the things we've talked about these last few weeks, even just last week, is a very difficult doctrine when we start talking about that I didn't choose God until God chose me. Like God was sovereign in salvation. That's a that's a difficult doctrine to to deal with when I've been taught all my life that I actually chose him and, and I'm his because of my choice. And so these are difficult things. We, we want, though, to encourage you, wrestle with the Scripture. We're, we're, we're trying, doing my best to bring you plenty of passages. I'm posting things on Realm. If you're not on Realm, look in the bulletin. It'll show you how to get on Realm. If you need help, I will help you. I, I want you to not believe like I believe. I, want, I don't want to hear you say, oh, Seth, you're right, although that does make me feel good. That feeds my ego. That's not the purpose of this. At, at the end of all of this, the, the desire is that we more fully understand, more fully conform ourselves to the Scripture. And so that brings me to the second reminder that I would like us to remember is that when I use terms like Calvinism and Arminianism, I'm not asking you to follow a man or some system of thought that was developed outside the Bible. <clears throat> These are shorthand, if you will. They are nicknames or they're just identifiers so that I can say this and you know what I'm meaning. Some of you are like, I don't know what you mean when you say that. But many of you do. And I'm just trying to use a shorthand that is commonly understood in church circles today. Kind of like when we call someone a Democrat or Republican, it identifies something about them. If we say you're a vaxxer or an anti-vaxxer, it identifies something about you. If we say you're pro-life or pro-choice, it identifies something about you. It doesn't mean that you agree with everything any of those positions hold, but it identifies some perspective. That's what I'm trying to use. That's why I'm using those words, right? At the end of all of this, at the bottom of every, every ounce of it, it is not my desire to, to ask you to follow a man or a system developed by man outside the Bible, what I want you to do, again, look at the Scripture. 
Conform yourself to the Scripture. Don't seek to conform the Scripture to yourself. It is God's Word. And it is too important, it's too vital for us to, 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 to know what He has shown us about who He is, what He's done, how He's worked. When we are done with this study, my hope and prayer has always been that we would be uh, not divided because we have different distinctive views, but we would be more unified because we each value the Word of God more. Even if we land on different conclusions about these distinctive perspectives, we recognize that we're coming at this from a biblical... We're looking to understand together the Word and then submit to the God whose Word is both powerful and authoritative. Okay? So that's, that's what we're doing. So let's get it. Let's get to it. All right. So here we are in this doctrinal study, in our distinctive study. And, and Dave, a couple of weeks ago, laid out one of those distinctives was gospel centrality. The gospel is at the center of everything we are, everything we do, everything we believe is, is rooted in the gospel. It's not something that was good for us when we got saved. It's, it's the power of God unto life. You can go back and listen to his sermon online. Did a great job of laying it out. You can read about it in our membership documents. I'd be happy to provide those for you if you let me know you want them. But there, that's the reality. We're gospel-centered people. The second doctrine, the second distinctive that we've been working on these last few weeks is that we, are, uh, we hold to a view that God is sovereign in salvation. God saves sinners. Sinners get saved. Like it's a work done to them, not something that they do. God saves sinners. Sinners get saved. And, and because that's a complex issue in, in that phrase, there's a lot addressed We've seen necessary to take some time and walk through it. So the first week we did a big overview that just demonstrated that perspective. The second week we began to break down the individual doctrines within that. They're called historically the doctrines of grace. And the first week we dealt with the necessity of grace. And the point that I made from the scripture, the point that we we looked at was that we believe God's grace is necessary for salvation. Because the sinner is unable to... To come to Jesus on their own. Unable. Our problem is not primarily a problem of permission, of knowledge, of opportunity, or even our own choice. Our problem at its core when it comes to salvation is that we are unable to come to Jesus. That's what we saw Jesus say in John chapter 6. That no one can come unless the Father draws him. He didn't say no one may come. He didn't say no one might come. He said no one can. And in the original language, there's the emphasis. The word demonstrates ability, demonstrates power. No one has power to come unless, he says, the Father draws him. We are unable. So then how can anybody be saved? If we are unable to be saved, how can anyone be saved? We moved then to last week, the second perspective or the second point, the second doctrine of grace we looked at was that we're saved by God's gracious and sovereign election. We are saved by God's gracious and sovereign choice. We believe that God has sovereignly and graciously elected every sinner who he gives to Jesus for their salvation. I would just remind you again, John 6, Jesus says, no one can come, no one has ability to come unless there's a condition. There's, there's, oh, there's an opportunity unless the Father draws him. And then later he says, everyone who the Father draws, everyone he calls will come. 
And so what he does is, in, that, in John chapter 6, Jesus makes our coming contingent upon God's power of giving, God's powerful act of giving us to Jesus. God is the one working to save. We are being saved. He elects sinners. And it, just two, two different perspectives that fall inside of that conversation are that God first decreed to save. He elected to save. And he elected who he would save. Now, that's tough, and I know it's tough, and, and, and there's, a, there, there's questions that come up from that. I was asked questions after the service last week, and, and, and let me just take this opportunity. Last week, I ended up in a long conversation, didn't get to talk to several people, but I did, in, did, did have a long conversation, met later, and, and had, a, had a more conversation, uh, and even was asked a question later in the day. Let me, just, let me just encourage you. In every chair, I believe it's in every chair in front of you, is a card that says a Connect card. Let me just say... Even if you're connected, even if you don't need to connect with me, but you have a question, use this card as a question card. And as I'm teaching and it comes up with a question like, well, what if people I love are not elect? That's a tough question. We're left with the same choice we're always left with. Whether they're elect or unelect, we're left with the choice that we're either going to believe in the power of man to go to God or we're going to believe in a holy, righteous, loving, compassionate, completely, infinitely merciful God to elect anyone. Who are we going to believe in? Who are we going to place our faith in? Who are we going to trust in the work of salvation? Are we going to hope that sinful man can be charismatic enough, helpful enough, encouraging enough, and good enough to convince and persuade another sinful person who's blind in their sin, who's stuck in a prison, has no idea that they even need to be saved, I can convince them and finally persuade them to to do something they're unable, Jesus says that they're unable to do. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, there's greater hope in believing in a completely righteous, completely powerful, all love, I mean, infinite loving, sovereign God who chooses to save people, period. That any are chosen is an amazing thing when we recognize who we really are and what we really deserve. And let me just encourage you. Write the questions down. I'll, I'll deal with them. I'll, I'll talk about them or I'll at least, if you don't want me to know who you are, don't, you don't have to put a name. Just write the question. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that it gets put out on Rome and gets answered in some way or... Um, I'll point people to resources that that help explain it further. I want you not to believe like I believe. I want you to be looking at the Scripture, wrestling with the Scripture, conforming your life to the Scripture. I'm convinced this is what the Bible teaches. I don't don't think that the more I've looked at it, the the more I, I feel like there's no other room for another choice except that we hang on to personal perspectives and wrestle with things that feel comfortable to us. But I want you looking at the scripture. So anyway, all right, today, the doctrine of grace that we're going to look at, that we're going to study, it, it's the next step. It's the next, the next piece of this puzzle. If God is electing sinners, how is he, how is he getting them saved? Like if we really deserve wrath and condemnation, how in the world is he saving us and not giving us what we Deserve. Does that not undo his righteousness and holiness? 
The doctrine of grace that we're going to look at today is the atoning grace that God has given us through Jesus Christ. Now, we studied the atonement back in our essential doctrine section. There is a view of the atonement that is absolutely essential to Christianity. Jesus is our victor. He won the victory from us. Jesus is our ransom. He ransomed us from our sin. But neither of those views of the atonement stand if he doesn't do it in a substitutionary way. Jesus is our substitutionary atonement. He died in our place for our sin. He won the victory by dying for me and rising before me. He won, he he ransomed me. The price he paid was his death. That is essential. We cannot disagree with that and, and remain in Christian community. We, 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 We may wrestle with it, but we're stepping outside the teaching of the Bible. We're stepping outside what the Bible demonstrates is true. And so that's an essential doctrine for us. But there's a view of the atonement. There's a view of Jesus's death that's not essential, but still important we discuss it. And that is the extent. Who is the atonement? Who gets saved by Jesus's death? Today, that's our focus, the substitutionary atonement. We're going to be looking at the atonement, at this doctrine from John chapter 10, verse 7 through 18. John chapter 10, verses 7 through 18. We're actually going to reference, once we read it, keep keep your finger there. We're going to reference some verses later. But I want you to see this. We'll read it. We'll pray. We'll ask for God to to just lead us. And then we'll, we'll dig in. Beginning in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So I want to stop right there. First, the first piece of this passage, Jesus, in an analogy, obviously, he's not a real physical door. He's speaking figuratively. He's speaking metaphorically. We don't look at Jesus and think, oh, he's a door. Let's open the doorknob and go through. Nobody assumes that. What he's talking about, he's the, he's the door that, that, that determines who is in his kingdom or who is in his flock, who is in the walls of his pasture, and who is not. He's demonstrating that if you enter into through me, you find eternal life. You get eternal life. You are saved is another way that we would say it. But as he finishes that phrase, he's about to flip and he's about to speak of himself in another figurative or metaphorical way. He's the door. We must enter in through him. There's no other way. Anyone else who comes is a thief and they destroy, is a robber. They do no good. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Now he's going sh- to shift And he's going to give them a different perspective or a different analogy about his identity and his purpose. In verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. 
I, I, I'm not the hired hand. I don't run off. I don't, I don't back away when there's danger. I, 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 don't, I don't run off when there's a need for me to lay my life down. I lay my life down for the sheep, he says. On verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up Again, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, clearly, Jesus is talking to these Jewish folks. In, he's, he's in the temple, likely, around the temple, talking to these Jewish folks about what is going on and in, in what he's come to do. He is the good shepherd. He doesn't steal and destroy. He gives life to the sheep. He lays his life down for the sheep. In fact, this is what the Father sent him to do. This is what the Father charged him to do. Jesus came to do it, to voluntarily, to willfully, to, to without coercion, lay his life down. We see the substitutionary atonement being expressed in this passage. He is saving his sheep from danger. He is not allowing to be destroyed. He's not allowing to be stolen and run off with and taken away by the, by the wolves. He is laying his life down for them. These are clear references to his death and his resurrection. Not only do I have authority to lay my life down, I have authority to pick my life up, to take my life up again. I have authority to die and I have authority to rise. This is what I was sent to do. Here's the thing. Jesus talking about this, to speaking and teaching about it, brings us to a question. Who did Jesus really die for then? If we look at this passage and we just take this passage just for what it says and we, and we follow it in context of what he's saying, who did Jesus die for? You see, the reality is we grow up in the American church prominently being taught Jesus died for everyone in the world. But that's not what he just said. If we ask this question first from this passage, the, the clear answer is that Jesus died for his sheep. And the implication is he knows his sheep. And his sheep know him. These, he's not just dying for any sheep. He's not dying for goats. He's not dying for sheep of other shepherds' flocks. He's not dying for anyone else's sheep. He's dying for his own. He cares about his sheep. He's not a hired hand in another flock. He, he, he even references the fact that he has another flock that he's going to bring to put together with this one. And they're going to be one flock. And he's going to be their one shepherd. And he lays his life down for them. Now, who did Jesus die for? The, the reality is that I, I think, unfortunately, in seeking, to, in, in, in seeking to react against the name of a doctrine, many of us have reacted in a way that, that undoes what Jesus said he actually came to do. 
So historically, the teaching is that there's three ways that we could potentially answer this question. Historically speaking, there have been three, generally three answers, at least three answers provided for this question, who did Jesus die for? Some people say everyone, right? He died for everyone. His death saves everyone. The problem with that view is this, it's biblically indefensible. There will be people who end up in hell. It's not exciting to talk about this. It's not, we, we, don't get ex- we, we don't teach this with joy. But universalism, which is what this view would be called, is a lie. Now, I, I like the view. Don't, don't misunderstand. I like, I like the idea of universalism. I love the idea that God saves everyone. It feels a whole lot better to me when I think I'm saved and the ones I loved, many of the ones I love are not. I don't want them to face the wrath of God. Absolutely, I like it. I wish it were the thing that the Bible taught. But I can't stand on my personal perspective. I can't stand on what feels good to me. I must conform myself to the teaching of the Bible. The Bible clearly shows that not everyone will be saved. So Jesus clearly couldn't have died for everyone. The the second answer that we could potentially give to this question, who did Jesus die for, is possibly everyone or possibly no one. This is what's considered, classically considered, the, the perspective of the Arminian argument. General atonement or unlimited atonement is the way it's referred to. So Jesus generally atones for everyone's sins. Jesus atones without limit to all people. That's, that's the perspective. This perspective holds that Jesus, and, and, and this, I, I could show you this in the, in, in the, the, well, actually the documents that were developed all the way back in the 1500s, 1600s where they were uh, called, it was called the remonstrance and they literally write in their articles of remonstrance that Jesus actually purchased the redemption of every person who has ever lived on this earth. He's actually bought their redemption, but they will only enjoy the benefits of their redemption if they believed. So what they do in that statement is Jesus died, and his sin, or his death, his sacrificial atonement, his sacrificial death, cleansed them of all their sin, removed all the reason for God's wrath against them. But they must believe. They must believe to enjoy the benefits of his redemption. And so... What that does is that means that in some way, mankind must cooperate with God in their salvation. Because if they don't believe, they don't enjoy the benefits of the redemption that Jesus has bought for them. They must believe. The the sinner must willfully cooperate with God's grace to receive salvation. Now, why then do we say possibly everyone? Because... And in, in, if, if God is not particularly atoning anyone's sin, and he's saying anyone could come, Jesus has paid it all for every person who has ever lived. They just have to believe to do it. There's, there's no guarantee. In fact, there's absolute biblical precedent to say no one would believe if God didn't do something. 
So either Jesus died with the possibility that everyone would be saved because everyone might be able to be coerced or he died with the possibility that he would absolutely save no one. Only time will tell. I don't... I personally don't think that does justice to the Scripture. And the third way that, that we could answer this question is, who did Jesus die for? The elect. This is a limited or definite atonement perspective. It's limited atonement or it's often called definite atonement or, or particular redemption. This is the Reformed or Calvinistic view. This view teaches that Jesus' death actually accomplishes salvation for a certain people. There's not a poss- not, it's not just a possibility of salvation laid out there, although there is a possibility of salvation, but, but there's a certain salvation, a definite salvation, a definite forgiveness, a definite covering of every sin of every person it's applied to. There is a definite atonement taking place on the cross. When Jesus died, he didn't die for possibly everyone or possibly no one. Jesus died. He laid his life down in his own mind and according to his own heart, first for the glory of the Father, because that's what he had charged him to do. Second, he laid his life down for the sheep. That's what he says here. The the, the view holds that anyone and everyone could come to Jesus, but because no one can, God said, I'm choosing... I'm applying this atonement to people and I am saving them, actually accomplishing salvation by it, actually atoning for their sin, actually removing my wrath from them so that they can enjoy my grace without them having any part to play in it at all. So who did Jesus die for? Those are the three views. I I think it's clear where I'm going to lay out or, or fall out here, but... In our view, the way we teach it here at the church, at the way, is that we believe that Jesus' death atones for the sin of every person God sovereignly and graciously elects to save. He laid his life down. Jesus, the good shepherd, laid his life down for his sheep. Not for the sheep of another flock. Not for the goats. Not for all the sheep that have ever existed. He laid his life down for the sheep of his pasture, the sheep that he knows, the sheep that know him. And let's just read a little further, and I think you'll understand why we're gonna why why, why I ultimately fall out that way, or, or think the Bible speaks that way. It, for for sake of time, we're just going to jump down to verse twenty five. It's the same same context, same set of events that appears based on the way John is writing here. Jesus seems to still be at the temple, but he write it, it says in J, in John ten, beginning in verse twenty five, Jesus answered them. I told you, and you do not believe. All right, so he's talking to Jewish folks still that aren't believing him. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Okay, stop, but but don't read any further. I want you to think about all the works that Jesus did, all the miracles that Jesus performed, all the things that he had accomplished while he was on the earth. Blind saw, deaf heard, lame walked, dead rose. 
He fed the multitude back in John chapter 6. These miraculous, powerful, miraculous works were the, were the testimony that went ahead of Jesus. They were the things that called or, or drew so many people to see Jesus. He was followed by multitudes and multitudes of people. The reason he had to feed multitudes is because multitudes had come out to see him because of his teaching and his powerful works. You, my, my works, they testify, he says in verse 25. But you do not believe... He says in verse 20, you do not believe. Why? Why do they not believe? Because you are not among my sheep. Now, I want you to think about that for just a second. Verse 26. We, we, we so often assume that our belief makes us one of his sheep. We believe that by exercising faith, we become his sheep. He just told us, he just told these Jewish folks... You don't believe, you're unable to believe, you can't believe because you're not my sheep. The the believing is the result of being his sheep. His sheep believe him, they know him, they hear his voice, they listen to him, they follow him. His sheep believe. The, the, The believing is the result of the identity. The believing is the result of of belonging to him. The belief is not. It doesn't proceed. It doesn't make us his sheep. It comes as a result of us being his sheep. All right, back to it. Verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. He's just made a distinction. These people, you you don't believe because you're not my sheep and you don't have eternal life because I don't give other people my eternal, eternal life. I give my sheep. Eternal life. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me. that catch you? How, how, how did they become a sheep? If they didn't believe and, and, and become sheep, how did they get to be sheep to begin with? My Father, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father out of the father's hand i and the father are one now just as soon as he says that they're ready to kill him because he just made a, a claim to his own divinity his, his divine nature he is god because he is i think we need to be listening to what he's got to say but how how then if if belief isn't what makes us a sheep but belief is the result of us being a sheep how do we become a sheep We are given to Jesus by his father. His sheep are given to him by the father. Jesus gives eternal life to everyone that the father has given to him. This should sound very familiar to you for those of you that have been here the last two weeks, us working from John chapter 6. No one can come to the father. Or no one can come to me unless the father draws me. Everyone who comes to me has been given to me by the father, Jesus tells us. Everyone he gives me, I will save. I will. He's teaching the same thing to a different group of people with a different set of analogies and figurative language. But the doctrine is exactly the same. He lays his life down for the sheep so that they might enjoy the eternal life that he came to give his sheep. And who are those sheep? The people that God, the Father, has given to him. Every person 
that God the Father has given to him, he has died to ensure that they have eternal life. Jesus' death does not atone for the sins of every person in the world. I don't like the term limited atonement. I don't think it does a good job of representing the doctrine that's behind it. But this is the way. This is why it's called limited because Jesus' death is not for everyone in the world. Otherwise, everyone would be saved. Jesus' death atones for his sheep. In every other measure, it is unlimited. It is infinite. It's infinite in value. It is, after all, the precious blood of Christ. He is the divine Son of God. And He hung on a cross and shed His blood to establish a new covenant. He allowed Himself to be killed so that you and I could live. It is the infinite, precious blood of our Savior. And it secures for us an eternal, not a temporary, not something bound in time, not something broken and sinful. It is, it is secured for us, His people, and He eternal inheritance. We will walk with God. He will be with us. We will be his people and he will be our God. That's what his blood has done. It is infinite in value. It is infinite in power. If God so chose that it would be powerful enough to atone for every sin of every person who has ever lived past, present, and future, it could absolutely accomplish this. This precious blood is full of power. It is infinitely power, powerful. But we know it doesn't. For whatever reason, according to the purpose of his will, he did not choose to save everyone. And our hearts should break for those who will drink the wrath of God's just or drink, drink the cup of God's wrath. Our hearts should break for those. That will suffer. That will get exactly what they deserve. But if God so chose. It could save. For those whose sins. Are actually covered. It is infinite in its efficacy. There is no ounce of sin. Left. This is why Paul was able to say. At the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3 or verse 4. That you were chosen. Before the foundation of the world. You were chosen to be holy and blameless. There is no sin left. When Jesus looks. Or when God the Father looks at you. He sees the purity and precious nature of Jesus. His son. No sin. Because of the death death of Jesus and the efficacy of his atoning work on our behalf. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's not a little bit of condemnation. There's not a tiny little inkling of condemnation. There is no condemnation because there is no sin he is holding against those people whose death or whose sin he's atoned in Jesus Christ. There is nothing you carry. There is nothing you have to make up for. There is nothing you have to do to please Him. He is pleased with you completely, 100% in Jesus Christ. There's nothing that can change that. Jesus, the Good Shepherd, has laid His life down for His sheep and His sheep only. This is the only limit to His atoning work. For every person who is saved, for every person who is saved, his death, our, it, it, it is infinitely powerful. It is infinitely efficacious. It is infinitely valuable. 
This limited view of atonement is affirmed repeatedly in the scriptures. We're going to push past things pretty quickly because I'm getting excited. I don't got to stay on point. But I want you to see them. When, when the angel told, jo- told Joseph to stay with Mary, right? So go, go, going back to when Jesus was born, the angel tells Joseph to stay with Mary. Don't divorce, di- divorce her. Matthew one twenty one. It says, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior. For he will save his people, not everyone, his people from their sins. As he's instituting the Lord's Supper, speaking of the new covenant and what he's doing and and the purpose of his death that he's about to, to go through. Matthew and Mark both record the same thing. We'll read Matthew's version, Matthew 26, verse 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Not all, not everyone, for many. He doesn't speak of universal atonement. He doesn't speak of making it possible for everyone to be saved. He's speaking in definite terms. He's speaking in certain terms. I am pouring out my blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders recorded by Luke in the book of Acts, writes in Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Here he's picking up on the the picture that that Jesus' people are his sheep. Pay attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He didn't obtain the whole world. He didn't buy the whole world. He purchased the church with his blood. In the letter to Ephesians, Paul then writes, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not for the whole world. Not for everyone who has ever existed. Not for every sin that's ever been committed. For his church. He gave his life up for his church. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He came to bear the sins of many. Not all, not everyone who had ever lived, not the whole world. The ones eagerly waiting for him then are those who have been, who have been elect, effectively atoned for, who have been seen their sins forgiven. Otherwise, they're running and hiding because when Christ comes, they face condemnation. We believe we believe and teach that Jesus' death atones for the sin of every person God sovereignly and graciously elects to save. But I want to be intellectually honest. I want to be, be straightforward. There's a reason that this conversation, that this question has been answered in so many different ways. There are passages of Scripture that make it sound as if Jesus did die for everyone. Like he actually atoned for the sins of all people. When John the Baptist identified Jesus as Jesus was coming down the bank to the, to the river, John looks at him, sees him, and he says this in John one twenty nine. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If John literally meant that Jesus would actually take away the sins of the world and people would remain in sin, then John was wrong or he's a liar. But we know that people remain in sin because there's people who will die and end up dealing with their sin for all eternity. The thing is is that it doesn't appear that Jesus actually came 
to take away every sin, but came to make sure that everyone had an opportunity to be saved, even though they wouldn't come because they couldn't come. John 3.16, it's a, it's a verse Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. It's a verse that comes up all the time. In fact, it came up this week as I was having some conversation with folks. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This passage is so often demonstrated, to, presented to show that, see, Jesus died for the whole world. God loved the whole world and Jesus died for all of them. Except that when you look at it, it actually limits it to people who believe in him. Who gets eternal life? Not the whole world. The people who believe in him. It's actually a better representation of a limited atonement than it is for an unlimited or general view. Only those who believe are given eternal life by his death. Let's just think back about what we've read in, in other places in the Gospel of John. Who believes in Jesus? The one the Father draws. The one given to Jesus by the Father. We only believe because of what the Father does enabling us to believe. We cannot come unless he works to bring us. This actually is a better support. You zoom out just around the context of John 3.16. The passage immediately before it, Jesus in the same conversation said, the, excuse me, the only people that will believe are the ones who are born again. The passage immediately following it says that not everybody's going to believe because those who don't believe love the darkness more than the light and those who don't believe are already condemned. So we know that he can't be saving the whole world by his death. He's actually limiting the atonement in this passage that would appear on the face of it that he loves the whole world and saving them when we know he doesn't. When Jesus says he's the bread of life in John chapter 6 verse 51 I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the, for the life of the world is my flesh. Again, Jesus makes a statement that on the face of it, on the face of it appears, that, oh, he, he's given his life for everyone. Again, again in context. You go back and read John chapter 6. We're not going to go there. We've been there for the last two weeks. I would encourage you to go back and read it in the context. The only ones who will be saved, the only one whose sins will really be atoned, who will really be covered by his death, are those who believe. And the ones who believe are the ones who have been given to him by his Father, who have been chosen by God the Father. When we read these passages and others like it. I, I don't want us to ignore it. I don't want us to act like they don't exist. That's, that doesn't do us any good. That's not us seeking to conform our life to the scripture. But we must not ignore the context and the surrounding passages. The context helps us to understand when words like world and all are used, who they're actually referring to. For example, if I say, everyone here today loves me. I don't know if you do or not, but I've it's just an illustration, right? Everyone here today loves me. I'm not talking about everyone in the universal sense, am I? I'm talking about everyone in this room, everyone here today, possibly even everyone here at this church. But context is going to help us understand what that is. Just because the word world is used or the word all is used doesn't mean it's a universal application every time. In fact, there's one study I'm working through as I'm doing this that demonstrates this guy, his name is, oh goodness, I'm going to forget his name. What's his name? Doesn't matter. 
he taught gospel do- doctrines of grace in the book of John at Ligonier. Stephen Lawson, thank you for Jesus. I'm guessing he's the one that gave it to me. Stephen Lawson is his name. He demonstrates in his study of the book of John that John actually, in his gospel record, uses the word world, cosmos in the Greek, ten different ways. And the only way you know how he's using it is to keep it in context. When we pull verses like John 3.16 or John 6.51 or, or verses like John 1.29, out of context, out from the rest of the, the teaching of that gospel record, we do damage to them. When we put them on the sides of coffee cups and think this is the truth and this is the only truth and this is the, this is the way I'm going to believe it and there's no other truth to look at, We're actually doing damage to the truth of God's word. It belongs in context. So we don't ignore the context surrounding the passage. When when we read the word all, the context helps us understand. When we read the word world, context helps us understand who it is these these words are referring to. When we read passages like the ones we've just read and, 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 and others like those, we don't ignore the rest of the teaching of the Bible. We can't ignore the rest of the teaching of the Bible. If we decide that John teaches that salvation is universal, but Paul teaches that salvation is limited, what have we just done? We've undermined our ability to believe anything. It will all be true or none of it will be true. We must pay attention to the, to the teaching of the Bible. So we read these passages in light of the whole counsel of God's word. For example, when we read passages like John 3.16 or John 6.51, and we decide, oh, everyone is, uh, is atoned for by Jesus' death. Then, then, then that puts us in, in a place that's very difficult to defend because the Bible clearly teaches that people will die and be condemned and they will face the wrath of God without the help of Jesus at all. And they will suffer eternally. They will, they will be in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm, where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Here's what we do if we decide that still Jesus must have died for everyone. We have said that Jesus has actually purchased their redemption. He has actually enabled and totally given God the power to forgive them. But it wasn't powerful enough because they still ended up in hell. I will resist any teaching that demonstrates that the powerful death of my Savior wasn't enough and it needed me to do something to to help him save me. The Bible is clear. I cannot. You can not. Quit trying to. Rest in his gracious atoning work. You see, the problem with universalism The problem with the idea that possibly people will get saved or that Jesus actually bought the redemption of people and now it just depends on them being believers. These people are still dying and going to hell and paying the price for their sin. Jesus' death wasn't enough. 
But that is not true. See, when we read the passages like we've read this morning and and others like them that that, that demonstrate that there is some benefit to the world in Jesus' death, we affirm, we affirm that, that anyone who is going to be saved must be saved through Jesus. He is the gate. If you are going to enter into eternal life, it is going to be through him. We affirm that by coming into the world, Jesus has paid a price that is sufficient for everyone. Anyone could be saved if they could come to Jesus on their own. Everyone can be saved. That's why we go out into the world and we proclaim the gospel to everyone. We don't, we don't hold back and say, oh, I don't think you're elect, so Jesus' death obviously didn't pay for you. Look at your life. I'm not going to teach the gospel to you. No, we affirm that, that, that in his coming, everyone has the opportunity for salvation. Everyone, if it was possible for a person to come, could be saved by this death. But we deny. We deny that it needs help, that it needs our reaction, that it needs our response, that it needs our activity to save us. We believe that his death actually, actually accomplishes something. It actually atones. It covers our sin. It actually purchases our redemption. It actually saves every person God has chosen to save. We believe that Jesus' death atones for the sin of every person God has sovereignly and graciously elects to save. If you're sitting here today, if you're sitting in this room today and you're trusting in Jesus for salvation, praise God. I'm not saying... I praise God for that. I'm saying, I'm commanding you, praise God. Because you didn't do it. You didn't accomplish it. It wasn't your faith. It wasn't your effort. It wasn't your work. It was the death, the sacrificial substitutionary death of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And before the foundation of the world, God chose that you would be saved. And he said, your sin, your, 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 what you deserve, your condemnation, my wrath for you will be taken by my son. And when Jesus came, he didn't just see your face, but he saw the faces of his church as he hung on the cross. He laid his life down for us. So rest. Trust. There's no sense in trying to strive and fight your way into his presence anymore. Jesus has ushered you in by his death. Rest in that. But if you're here today and you're thinking, I've never trusted in salvation, let me plead with you. Believe in Him and Him alone. And I guarantee you this, I promise you this, if you do, every ounce of His death, every every ounce of the power of his death will be applied to your sin and the wrath that you so rightly deserve and God will save you. Let's pray.